Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this, which is commonly known as the graveyard shift, which is that time of the day when both the lunch we've just had and the night before tend to catch up with us and we try to have a bit of a nap. It's also that time of day that many of us remember well from studying days when we can stare for lengthy times at our material, convincing ourselves that we are busy studying, but actually not much is happening. But on the subject of the night before, I think it's very appropriate for this paper and that Last night was a day when we could, with 12 members of society, celebrate them having slayed their own particular dragons. And I think the pride and um, that was evident on the faces of their mothers and their partners was reward in itself that far exceeds anything from a financial or career advancement phase that they might have received from achieving that particular this qualification. And we go back into this paper now. It's ready. The sort of so as the title was that I came was those memories of those hours spent studying at this time, staring at that paper like a zombie-like drug den type scene that gave rise to the title and where I started thinking about it. And then as I've been doing this work over the last number of years, trying to understand what's driving our students to succeed or those who are not succeeding, what are the factors that might be getting in the way, is really asking the questions, are there things in addition to hard work and ability that are affect or impact the extent people pass or don't pass the exams. And why? Question that's probably worth answering. The statistics aren't going to tell me people keep coming back despite continuing and repeated disappointments, often in the same subjects. The question is, at the end of the day, is it all worth it, the work that we, we do for it, and how do we measure the worth of the exams? Before going on, I'd just like to first thank um, our chairman of the session, Roseanne, as well as Paul Lewis and Dave Strugnell for and the staff in the, the ASSA office for the support and guidance that they've given on this paper, and particularly to, to Dave and his team at Precept who really gave me some fresh insights on a lot of the data that we are looking at. In this presentation, I'm not going to go sort of page by page through the paper. I think some of you would have read the paper, and it would be a disservice to you to talk through that, but just to really talk about where we need to go, and just as a commercial, those who haven't read the paper, there's a brief article on the SA Actuary that are copies around the, the hall that you might be able to get the Reader's Digest version from there. Let's look through these things. The objective here is ready to hopefully give some statistics of what has happened, some interpretation on where there might be some attribution on these things, but really main focus is to try and understand the reasons behind the data, which I'm hoping a discussion will evolve from there where we will understand some of the drivers and from the Actuarial Society's perspective and particularly the Academy of the Actuarial Society areas where it might help to put additional interventions or change the nature of the interventions that we have. So we look briefly at what is the business case before we go into the factors driving a business case being the probabilities around things as well as the, the financial aspects of the business case. So we look at the, the business case is a deceptively simple business case. It's um, exam success obviously leads to improved prospects and earnings and opportunities and the concurrently very low probability of involuntary unemployment. And the cost side consists um, of the direct costs that we all know, be it's costs of exams, tuition material, or anything else, but the real cost large is the unseen opportunity costs well, not unseen, but any employer will know them and any student will know them with the hours spent, be it on study leave, otherwise away from work or other opportunities where we are spending time studying. 
obviously from the, the risks associated with it, the, the obvious one is the risk of failure. I think ultimately we're in a binary position where you either pass or you fail. It's not a half pass, half fail, except that unlike many other professions, we go through 13 core, core exams plus an additional three assessments on the normative side, which means there can be partial successes, and we see through experience out there that even people who don't go the, the distance get many of the benefits along the way as they acquire successes as they go through the way. If we move through to look at the overall picture that we have here, and you'd say as a glance that embarking on this looks like a, a high-risk journey for anyone to, to take, but we have a, a school system where many students, even of average ability, leave thinking they are geniuses of Einstein proportions, that we get over 800 students coming into our actuarial programs across our six universities every year. Through the course of the next three to seven years, about half of them will come out the other end with a bachelor's or honors degree in actuarial science. Others will have gone on to other things, realizing actuarial is not for them, and for some of them realizing that they just don't have what is needed for the actuarial side. They'll then come through and start their quest with us, many of them having already had some conference-enhancing blows that they've struck along the way and gaining exemptions, which can be anything from a few up to 10 or 12 exemptions that some of them might get through there. And, but it's a reality that they all face at that stage. We get students, many of whom were straight A's through their school life, now into a situation where they have a greater probability of failing than they have of passing. And each year, and we see, we said the new fellows dinner last night, and we have four of those a year spread between here and and Johannesburg, we have about 80, maybe going up to 85, 90 at this stage, qualifying a year, which is saying if we take a cold look at that, 800 coming into the system every year, 80 coming out successfully the other end, about a 10% probability of succeeding on the way. We take a, an overall look at the performance of students, and we have a syllabus that is very tiered, where students will start at the A1 level, which are really foundation skills, move through to the core technical skills at the A2 level, the application of those skills at the A3 level, after which they can be recognized as associate actuaries, moving on to the specialist F1 level for the specialist skills and the specialist application level at the F2 level. And even though we see through each stage the less able students falling off, as we can see here, the pass rates get lower and lower at each stage, suggesting the work is getting more difficult and it's more of a challenge for students to go there, and I think which is probably why many of us signed up for it in the first place. For more detailed breakdown by subjects, through this presentation I'm really looking at subjects in these groups, but full details can be seen in the paper, in the appendix two of the paper there's a full breakdown, almost any way you want to watch, over the five-year window that I've looked at the performance. In trying to analyze the performance, I've split it into a number of categories. Firstly, what I'd call is the uncontrollable factors, which are really the, the biological factors, male, female, and race factors, and that's not because I think there's any underlying difference in performance. I'm starting with the assumption that um, effectively either any group have the same probability of succeeding collectively, but we are seeing through this that there might be groups that collectively underperform others and let us try and understand the reasons for that and where we need to put additional support. Then go to factors that before you start working and join us as a student that were decisions that were controlled at that stage, 
but may have an impact on your success going further down the track before we move on to issues that impact you now that you're in your working life as a working student of ASA and seeing what works, what doesn't, what combinations make success through each stage. Okay, this slide, the format of this slide reflects much of the next few slides as we just look for where there are differences or in performance or they exist or don't. Just if we look briefly at the slide, the exemptions are self-evident, the number of exemptions on average the students come out of university with in this group and be an indication of, you know, we're starting with the underlying thing, certainly for big groups, that there's equal potential, but it's often how easily students adapt into the university environment affects the exemptions they get, and when we look at by employer later on, it will be an indication of the level of selection in terms of employment that happens there. The attempts is clearly the number of attempts that a student fitting into this group made at a paper during that, over this five-year time at that subject, and the, um, the index is a measure that we've derived that is a we can't use the straight raw average pass rate there simply because we see at the different tiers there's such materially differences, differences in the pass rate that we've built a measure that's effectively a weighted average of how much better or worse the group of students do than the average student over the period, the time. So in this particular case, by looking by gender, it's saying that female students are performing on a geometric basis 4% better than the average student, male students 2% worse than the average student which is not significant overall, except at A301 level where the female students are at plus 12, male students at minus 5. So there's a clear difference there. And trying to understand why these differences occur in going through it, I think one of the factors that has some instinct is that men don't seem to know when to give up. And whether you see that as a persistence or obstinance is really depends on your perspective. But by way of example, we had one female student make a tenth attempt at one subject she didn't pass it, and that was the, the last we've seen of her in the exam system. Amongst men's students in the same period, we've had 47 tenth or higher attempts, including one student who's had six of those attempts in one subject to one student who over this time made six, made, got up to a 15th attempt on one particular subject, is yet to break an FC on the subject, but he... Um, did make a 16th attempt after the end of this period and got another FD. So obviously he's still got a way to go, but I do admire the persistence there that's happening. We move on to a look by, by race where we can see clearly from the numbers they are very marked and there's significant differences here. As I said at the start, I do not believe race is the underlying driver for this. For a second, I would have liked to have had data that we could have looked at things at variables like um, home language and like the secondary school people attended, because from discussions with universities and elsewhere, I think the secondary school, which quintile fits in, will be a far more important factor. Home language, clearly an important component here. I think it's something that as we talk a bit later about the South African Actuaries Development Program, we can um, see that, you know, that there are differences in performance that I don't believe where race is a significant factor. So there's obviously a clear correlation here. We move through to the factors that could previously be controlled. The first one being what university you've attended. And if you're looking for your, your alma mater there, I've deliberately taken out the names of the institutions because I think that's not going to enable the debate. I'd rather we talk around the principles. So obviously, and the data obviously include in there 
students who attended the university but not through the actuarial program, so I don't want to tar and feather any particular program through this discussion here, though there are clear differences in how the, the programs run. And could we look, and I think just before taking this any further, just caution you just to look at the comments on data with regard to the university data in the paper to put things into context here. I think what we see here that there are some clear differences on, as it appears here on the, on the performance across students. When we take out the uncontrollable factors, a lot of those differences go away. We find Alpha University is marginally better, but there isn't a significant difference there. But what is of interest to me is there that the differences between graduates of students from different universities at different stages of our curriculum are very different, the performance there. I haven't worked through as to why that's the case, but if we look through the paper, I think it's table eight in the paper, if I recall correctly, plus into the second appendix, we'll see it that graduates from certain universities do very well at their foundation skills. Other universities, they do a lot better at the, um, at the fellowship level and the fellowship application level subjects where the differences are quite marked. As we look through the programs, some are more technical in nature, some of the programs are are more business focused in terms of where they sit in the university and the non-core content of the papers. They all have the same core subjects included, but when they move to the balance of the things, some have more of a technical focus, others more of a business focus. And overall, it seems that where there's more of a business focus, there's more, there's better performance at the F2 level exams, which is the, the fellowship application level. Move on to the South African Actuaries Development Program. And for those who don't know the program, this was set up by President Soro Ramaphosa when he um, chaired SASRIA with the explicit objective of trying to get more South African actuaries from disadvantaged backgrounds. The program provides a combination of financial support, academic support, and psychosocial support to students who are coming to the universities and they do a very useful work for the profession and going literally through the deepest rural areas of the country looking for potential students. They have very active selection processes. They run, have a presence on three of our six campuses that we've accredited and this is forms of their students. I've done a, a comparable group to compare that to which is a, effectively the demographic from which SADP students are drawn but are not selected by SADP or some of them might not have applied. So that's the group, which effectively, in a way that it excludes the white students, is probably the, the net effect of that. Where we find with the SAADP students, performance is very strong when they join us, particularly in the A subjects, the first few phases where they perform better than the average student overall, but there are severe issues when it gets to the, the F2 fellowship level exams where they are underperforming the comparable demographic as well as all students by a fairly wide margin. I've advanced some reasons why that might be the case in the paper, but I'd be really interested to hear from SADP graduates or employees of SADP graduates why they think that might be the case. Now, I think it could well be people having achieved a high level of success, employers very keen to advance people, particularly from a BEE perspective, maybe advancing people an area that it now compromises the exam performance might be one of the reasons, but I really am interested to hear the reasons, and as a society we can work with the SAADP and employers to, to help achieve President Ramaphosa's objective of getting more actuaries from disadvantaged backgrounds. 
move through to what's ultimately the currency for any students in our universities when you're passing through the, the program is how many exemptions do you earn at the universities, which obviously saves you time and money on a fairly substantial level while you get out of the university, improves your employment prospects, and certainly sets you on the road to success far more quickly, having been exempted from writing these exams once you move out. I think we see, unsurprisingly, if we ignore the, the zero exemption group, that there's a clear um, flow from those with, with fewer exemptions to those with a full set of exemptions in terms of how the performance goes. I don't think there are any surprises there at all. The zero exemption group being a far more interesting group as that includes both the, the most poorly performing students out of the, the actuarial programs plus all the students from non-actuarial programs. And we find in this group they have quite a few places where they have high drop-off rates but once they get to the fellowship level, students coming out of this level are performing as well, if not slightly better than those with a full set of exemptions coming through. So I suppose those who've really gone the long route to and have been really tested in the fire and the few that come out the top end are really very strong students when they get out the top end. That brings us to the end of looking at things that happen before you join the Actuarial Society and you start doing exams as either an unemployed or a working student and gets into looking at the, the factors that you can influence now as you write. And this first factor was one that I wouldn't have thought of looking at myself in any detail, but it's through work that Dave Strugnell did with me, showed that it's actually a fairly marked difference that comes through whether you're writing in Gauteng or the Western Cape, which account for collectively about 95% of all exam sittings, where even after taking into account all other factors, be it university, be it race, be it anything else into account. The Western Cape students are outperforming on a place that is significant at the A2 level, but just marked and consistent at most of the other levels. Fairly significant at the F2 level as well, but, um, but, but it is a marked and consistent difference through that. And going to be interested to hear views on why this is the case. I mean, some of the Ones that I think are possible could be a difference in corporate culture and offices here against Gauteng in terms of the pressure on students. It can be something like the dead time, like commute time is, is this onerous here. Could be something like how we use our recreational time. Time here allows us to be more effective when we go and study after, afterwards. There are possible reasons. A reason coming out of China since I completed this paper was where they did a longitudinal study showing that where the high levels of air pollution IQ deteriorates fairly quickly, so maybe that contributes, but I don't know. I'd be interested to hear the reasons for that coming through. Next look by which session, whether it's the first or the second session that people write, which again, overall there's very little difference except in two subjects where they're the balancing differences at the A301 level does very well in the first half of the year and it's been consistently over the period it's been like that. The F100 level in the second half of the year, the A301 level, I've taken it probably being people coming straight out of university, didn't get it at university and they can reset it less than six months later while it's still being a large subject, allows them to have a proper study time at it, including the university time, but I, I don't know any other reasons why that is the case. And move on to what I think is the, the essence of trying to find where there may be differences because we start to have people coming through the same university programs and they move to join different employers. That's when there's a divergence in terms of the benefits they get offered, the culture around which they work, 
and one of the factors that intuitively I feel must be a significant factor here as I've seen over time that the areas where people do better and areas where people do worse and trying to understand the reasons here I think is really the crux of the work I've been doing over the last number of months to understand what's happening. And we've looked here first by employer sector here where we can broken down with audit which is defines effectively if you work for one of the big four audit companies you're down as audit. Whether your job is doing data analytics there or working on audits you're in that category. Anything else, if you're in one of the larger groups, it's what is the predominant activity of that group that divides which group that you you through here. So I haven't looked specifically individual by individual what work they're doing, but what organizations they work they work for. I think what we see here, we have exemptions of the measure of quality, the auditors and to less extent the short term insurers employ sort of slightly stronger students than the rest. We see that flowing through into the the results their students achieve, which for well, the short-term insurers was a bit of a surprise to me from the point of view as a short-term um, fellowship application subject is the one that's been a consistently poor-performing subject over a lengthy period, but overall the short-term insurance students do very well, while the general consultancy ones, which effectively any consulting work that's not one of the big four companies was in that going from the large organizations through to the ones that are two or three-man Shops was uh, probably slightly underperforming at that level. We saw that between sectors and then looking also from employers. Again, as with the universities, I'm not putting the employer names in the case. I think it's not going to d help our discussion here. We just talk around the issues around it, I think is important. But I've seen through looking at this data, and again, just the caveat around how strong our employer data is. I think it is reasonably strong, but I can't vouch for it. But there are some significant differences in the performance of students with different organizations. So looking at the using exemptions as a proxy for the strength of the students going in, and then how do the students perform? I've taken here, we've got an appendix three, a breakdown of 30 employers plus the unemployed and self-employed. I've taken here the seven largest one plus the strongest performing of the medium-sized so organizations overall to see where things stand. Because if we look through this, we look at, um, so you can see employers F and M with this 5.7 and 6.3 exemptions. Employees slightly stronger students on average than the other groups, but we're seeing fairly strong differences. They are, sorry, those ones are performing stronger, which is not on the face of it too surprising there. We see that the three largest employers, ABC, have students largely similar places that they go into as far as exemptions are concerned, but you can see vast differences in the performance from being sort of 8% over the average to 30% under the average, or for the students coming at a similar level and a similar number of students, suggesting that there, there could well be something systematically underneath it. What we did through the analysis, we find, can't say that any of the differences were statistically significant, but there were some that I'd say were very marked and consistent in one direction of employers either over or underperforming. Now move from just purely giving the, the statistics as they come to say how can we try and take out the impact of factors that um, we already looked at the uncontrollable and previously controllable factors and see are there differences per employer looking beyond just exemptions. So I've taken a, a regression approach in doing this and I think it's there could well be additional approaches, but my 30-plus-year-old statistics training didn't train me to do that, so I 
haven't looked at that. There could be other approaches to that, and that's, but I think the objective of the paper is to try and see where there might be differences, is trying to understand the factors driving it. And here I think we see some fairly dif um, strong differences coming through here, where you see, if you look at the, the first two employers, where they're fairly similar overall how their students do, but as far as the students coming working in employer A, a lot more of their strength is coming out of the fact that they are students from demographic groups that generally perform better than, than B's got, suggesting that what's happening in B has probably over this time been supporting students better than what's happening through in A. Then what is of interest in both these slides is the self-employed students. We're on the previous slide we saw that the self-employed students, and not very many of them, but averaging about six exemptions each, which is well above the, the norm, but clearly being in a self-employed environment hasn't been a conducive environment for success in the exams as you have the challenge of running a business and studying, so showing the, the benefit of any kind of study benefit that might be there with a salary guarantee with it as well. And the unemployed students, those include a lot of undergraduate students who are sitting in an exemption that they've missed to write for that subject, get a pass in that subject, so they look as though they're performing fairly well, but they only perform well at the A1 and A2 subjects. They don't perform well beyond that, so that is obviously where the business experience comes into value. And to try and understand what is happening with employers better, we sent a survey out to to all the different ATOs, which are actuarial training offices, which we have just over 100 on the books, 34 responded, including seven of the largest eight. Plus, at the other end, we had three responses from employers that don't have any students on their books at this stage at all, so it was a fairly wide range, but most of the work I did was concentrating on the larger ones where any difference in performance was more than just purely accidental from you know, that two students, one passed, one didn't, it doesn't tell you anything on that side. And the factors that we looked at here was looking at differences in the study benefits offered, be the firm benefits like study leave and where the employer pays or doesn't pay is what the employer pays for and doesn't pay for. Looked at things that the response in the organizations to success and failure in the exams, whether there are bonuses offered, what how's failure in exams viewed in terms of staying on the actuarial program or anything else happening there and also try to get an indication as to what is the culture in the organization towards the exams, you know, towards success or failure in the exams, an underlying culture that is there, that, that flows through there. Again, with the small numbers, we can't attribute anything as having been statistically significant through this, this look, but things that did come through in the first one that did surprise me when I looked at it was there was no positive correlation between the amount of study leave offered and the performance of students in the organization. And I stress it as a small sample, but it seems to be that the more study leave offered above a, a certain level, the worse the students did. And the possibility is that the students might feel that the study leave is all they need to study if they get a lot, and they don't need to put some of their own time in on top of that. We saw this positive correlation between organizations that offer any kind of financial incentive on passing or first-time passing, be it a bonus or a salary increase, and the results, there was definitely a positive correlation there, but again, so not a significant one. And I think what we found to try and get to how organizations deal with failure, there was a, a wide range of options given. There was 
nothing consistent that I could work through to, to a pattern on that. I think the most common factor being that people were using up their study time and they're having to start paying for themselves for the next round of exams. For many organizations, a level of failure was an important consideration, how they responded. So an FA, although it wasn't a pass, you got less of a consequence than there might have been if it was an FC or an FT. But I did notice in certain organizations, um, they responded that um, an exam failure is a performance issue, and that's how it's dealt with in that context. And then trying to understand those four statements at the bottom, what the sort of underlying philosophy, underlying whether students pass with the results around the exam sort of ranging from failure, that is not an option, which I'm glad to say no company came up as that as a, as a perspective through to students are expected to pass every exam. One or two companies came up with that that had amongst the worst performance of their students, be they large or small ones with that. So whether they're having poor performance and then this is the stand that they've come to it or whether they have this stand which doesn't really help the students pass, but those who have a more understanding thing that exam success is seen as as an achievement whenever you pass one, and that uh, although I don't want anyone to fail, if you fail honorably, it's not a, uh, it's a it's an acceptable position to be intended to have better performing students, where you've got that feeling that there was a more supportive environment, was where students tend to do, do better. You can looking through the organizations, I think going through and again from informal conversations with quite a few people around, the impression I got is where students are offered greater exposure to either a wider range of activities or a wider range of things or involvement in more strategic discussions than they might be in other organizations that tend to perform better, particularly when they move into the F levels of the, of the, of the curriculum. Next looked at the area of the various interventions that are offered. Here we've only been consistently running some of them for a relatively short period, so I only looked at the last two years of data, and even in the context of that, take-up rates of the interventions like counselling and the courses is not, not high, so I can't come with anything that says this is a statistically significant one. It could just as well be a random variation, but throughout all the periods under investigation, people going for exam counselling tend to do better, you know, because going for exam counseling, you've already failed last time. Generally, students who, the second round attempt, tend to be slightly weaker than they were the first time as the, as the best students are now out. But those students, as we can see here, significantly outperformed the, um, the average student, getting close to, to double the performance of the average student if you look at the A301 level. Similarly, there were improvements for people doing any kind of courses or mock exams than outperforming the, the average students. And you compare that to the students taking no intervention of any nature, you're saying those are now significantly disadvantaging to themselves relative to the average students, is how it's been through this process here. And whether that's a result of the intervention adding value, or whether it's the more motivated and keener students that, um, that, that, that use the interventions, you know, I cannot tell that from the statistics. My gut feels that's a combination of both. The people that want to start working early are the ones who commit to doing the courses and they, and then they go to the courses and they get a certain amount of value of it, but I, I cannot prove that one way or the other through that. I think for the benefit of anyone who's been enjoying the um, benefits of the graveyard shift and having a quiet nap, 
this slide really summarizes what we've covered today through this time, is saying that um, you can see that female students perform slightly better than male students. There's significant, but not, in my view, causal differences as a result of race. The different styles and contents of the university programs do result in different performance at different stages of the curriculum. Um, students through the South African Actuaries Development Program do very well at the early subjects, but are, are battling when it gets to the fellowship level exams. The Western Cape students have consistently done better and across the exams, as have students and a number of the different employ employers have done well. And although the numbers are small through the different education interventions, we definitely see a clear correlation between results and um, what interventions people have had. Which moves us on to saying, the extent is to, is this all worth it in effect in terms of, there's a lot of work that goes into it. We know the pass rates, the exceptions, the earliest levels are below 50% across the board. And to look at building a, a business case around it, the first place would be to start is saying, well, what does this all cost? And I took here three hypothetical students, the first one getting a full house of exemptions and passing everything else at the first attempt, the next one getting no exemptions but passing everything first time out, and the third student being an, an average student. If you look in the in section of the paper in 6.1, you'll get as to how many exemptions they've got. It's, I think, four exemptions and two-point-something attempts at every subject is how it goes on average. I forget the, the exact breakdown, but it's in the paper as to how that it is. And look, this cost includes the normative skills program, exemptions, doesn't include any additional tuition of any nature, but you can see across this that it's, it's not a cheap business to become an actuary. Even, and this is all, of course, over and above the cost of having got a, a three- or four-year degree before you get here. If you want full details of the costs, again, you can go to section 6.1 and 6.2 of the paper for how they stand for 2018. And obviously, you say the flip side is saying, well, you've been through that. Is this worth it? And this here is taking based on available salary information and the rates of increase on average that I could get from different employers and assuming people become a senior actually 15 years after they qualify, whether that's a fair assumption or not, I, I don't know, but it's showing that coming out of university with an actuarial qualification, being employed but taking it no further, your lifetime earnings are about worth about 8.6 million. Going through to people qualifying three years are getting effectively four times that in, in round numbers. If they can, if you can do it, it's, it's definitely worth the work and this is taking into account no career breaks or unemployment, no sort of exit, no sort of super bonuses or anything along the way, just on a normal salary type employment as trends currently stand. I think on that side you can say that there's a clear financial case for taking this forward. And we look, that's obviously from the individual's perspective where they look at their lifetime earnings and say, so how do you do it from an employer's perspective? This is not like football where we have a transfer market and you can um, so invest in the player and then sell them on to someone else. Fortunately, you're not like that, so saying that if we look at students remaining with an employer for one or two years after they've qualified and then moving on, so trying to take a fairly conservative view, what's the value for the employer? And this first view takes, it's the full details to be found in Table 30 in the paper, but it is saying if you've got a star student who is um, writing in his last year of, of studying, his last F100 level subject and his F200 level, he's taking the average study leave the employers give, 
and um, how the and he's taking that, he's using it in the in the consulting picture for the employer. Fair to be the next year when he's qualified, he's getting more than double the revenue out of the student, and that is not including the fact that he's probably far more motivated as well in that stage and not taking any psychological impact of the value of having passed. So saying even from an employer's perspective, the cost of student being away be it on study leave or taking unpaid leave in, in lieu of study leave is a significant cost against the revenue that an employer can potentially gain from a student. To say that how do we um, improve the return someone's going to get on, on, the, on, on their studies, and obviously the key driver, we've seen that the costs are, are significant, particularly the cost of time in terms of taking time off to study is a significant component. The value on passing is on the other side and say how Obviously, the clear way is in terms of improving is improving the pass rate that the students getting through there. The one way we've spoken about here is in terms of the value coming from the interventions. But I think we've also seen looking at employers is a significant difference in performance in different employers. So I think for even where the interventions are being education interventions are being used or not being used for employers to relook and say how do we get an environment that is actually supportive towards the students moving on and, and passing, passing their subjects. Have through this process worked on the assumptions that the interventions add value, and it's something I do with some trepidation because I've got nothing to prove it, and I'm not trying to market the products we sell in this thing, and the, and the trepidation I see of this is I've seen a report, and I unfortunately couldn't find the exact source, but where somewhere in the USA a governor or a a mayor of some jurisdiction saw that um, students who had books in the home did a lot better at school. So there's a great fanfare initiative. He gave books to every school-going family in the whole area in which they covered. To his surprise, with a few exceptions, there was very little improvement in school performance. And further research found that the people who already had a hunger for knowledge had books and additional books just added to what they had, and they used them in the same way they used any others. Many of the homes that didn't have books, with the exception of those where they couldn't afford books but wanted them, but most of them, the books weren't wanted anyway, so they're now used as doorstops or for other more practical uses than reading. So it added no difference, and so, again, that caveat here, is this due to the value that the intervention brings, or is it that you've got students who've got greater potential of doing it, and the intervention is more of a placebo? When we move through to look at the effect of, of doing this, just to try and put a number and saying, on the assumption that these interventions work, you can look for a student where there's no intervention, the, the value of passing that last exam, as the case is looking at. You've got the whole way, got the last ex exam, you take your first, second, third attempt, what's it worth, present value now of doing it, against if you take one of these two interventions. You have an online tuition course, which is cheaper than a face-to-face -face one, but it's gives equally good performance coming through, and you can see on that side you're getting close to a, to doubling your, effectively doubling the value of your return based on a 5,000 rand investment, as you could be saying in this case. And similarly with counselling, which obviously you get off to your first failure, you go for counselling, and that we see and effectively again doubles the value is that you don't need to have, less likely to have successive attempts at um, needing to take study leave then if you pass the thing first time around. So it's a clear difference in the value of the thing which puts in terms of where the cost of it stands and the potential value which 
still need to put the caveat that the guy who um, goes for the counselling still has a less than 50% chance of passing, which puts him in a lot stronger position than the person who has had no further intervention from there. And similarly, always, obviously, from the employer's side as well, where he doesn't have the value of the lifetime revenue flow from this one particular individual, again, seeing in the same contest of just looking narrowly over a short period, what is the value that the student brings, looking at a two-year revenue flow after qualification flow from this. And again, it's close to a doubling of, of the value going through from the counselling. So even if your policy doesn't allow you to to pay for the student to be counselling, there's a lot of sense encouraging the student to invest in himself and be and take the counsellor. So I think we can, in conclusion, say that um, we've seen from exam performances there are differences by race. We have seen universities and South Africa's development program do have a difference as you move into the world of work. And there are differences in terms of where you write. What's causing that? There's certainly huge differences amongst employers, and I think the encouragement here would be to employers to go and say, do we have an environment and policies that encourage our students to be, be passing? We will be going back to the, the companies that participate in our survey to them know where, the, where they sat in the picture and which company they are, which will assist them hopefully with their policies going forward and um, the value of the interventions that are there. It's there that they are significant costs, particularly the indirect costs of, of, of studying for the exam, but it's something that is of huge value, this profession, to the individuals involved in it. I think from a cold reality side, that is what the picture looks like, but again, going back to last night, I think none of these benefits really compare with the sort of pride and sense of achievement that can come from having achieved something that's known to be difficult, and I think it is something of, of huge huge value from that perspective in an individual, but from the point of view of this, this session here, I really look forward to, to feedback on things that work either in your organization or work for you as a student going forward that we can maybe use effectively as a profession to guide the next generations of actuaries to success as they come through our profession. Thank you. Thanks so much, Mike. Well, I'm dying to see what the um, illustrator has done with that uh, presentation. Um, I can't see from the side. So with that, I open up to, to the floor for um, comments and, um, and, and questions, and hopefully we can get some good suggestions as well from people's experience. So there are roving mics, so please let me know if you want to contribute. One in the front, Joe and Andrew, and one back there. It's like fastest finger first. Okay, go, go ahead. Hello. Uh, thanks for the presentation, Mike. You'll be happy. I just uh, thought about when you mentioned the, side, the SAADP students um, and the difference between when they're at varsity versus after they've left. Uh, I used to tutor those students when I was at varsity and uh, they got additional tutoring compared to the rest of the students. So. I'm just wondering if one of the factors might be the, the loss of that extra support once they're out of the education system, I mean, the, the university system, because, um, yeah, so essentially every week on top of the, the tasks they had, we had additional sessions, and there was quite a lot of support within that system. 
I think um, that I think is, is definitely one of the reasons I think could well be there. We're hoping that the, the academy we've set up will be able to, as the students move out of the University of the SADP and become more actively involved in the academy, that is there, which will hopefully put them at least have the same level of support as every other student that comes through the academy. But I think that is one, and obviously with that support, I think maybe another thing that feeds off that is with that support that our students who, if they weren't SADP, might have dropped out of the program, are then moving on. So it's students who, without that support, would have fallen by the wayside, and unless we pick them up, they, they will, and that could well be what's coming through. So I think you're right there. Joe? Hi, Mike. <coughs> Thanks very much for the presentation. Uh, I've got two comments. One, one is just along um, an, a suggestion or a request for the next final version of your paper, uh, which is to uh, maybe highlight the significance of the results along the way, because you're often uh, highlighting a result that was positive, but not, not necessarily how significant was it within the draft that I read. And I think the significance, uh, I mean, should be the, the primary thing. If it's not significant, then we shouldn't be, be looking at it. So that's just a request. Um, then, uh, so the other, the other comment is more, one of the most significant numbers in here was the 800 students come enroll every year, 400 join ESSA and 80 qualify. And I know obviously the 80 qualifying coming, are coming from a cohort a few, quite a few years ago, so there's a change there, but that, but th there's still that, that huge reduction. Um, and the selection has been that the smartest students apply to the actuarial science students at universities. And then the smartest of those have passed and, and qualified with a degree and carrying on as actuaries, and yet somehow we've had this huge dropout rate along the way. And then looking at that combined with the pass rates for the average student for an F2 paper being 28% or 30%, for an A300 paper being 30%. So somehow we, we are working, we've worked ourselves into a system where a, the smartest people in the country are 60 or 70% of them are failing every exam that we are setting. And something's wrong with that model, because if you take that 30% and you reduce it for a couple of your factors, you're getting probably to a 5 or 10% pass rate for certain groups with uncontrollable factors that we can't change. And then modifying that number by, by a few percent doesn't make any more sense. And that, that idea of, of, of students being, if you multiply the probabilities of passing each exam, it starts being like one of those multiplying probabilities of life in the universe existing. Um, and you get to a point where, where it does seem quite impossible to qualify that as an actuary. So, what, are, what, is, what, are, what has happened with the, with the system that these very smart people have these very low pass rates in general, and, and what can we do there? I, think, I feel like there's an intervention there as opposed to trying to modify the study habits or the study leave or support. Well, maybe it's one that yourself or some of the other universities can give some guidance, but just speaking from so where I sit, be in the actuarial society, plus my other role as a, as a parent, it, it comes through as wondering whether a large part of the thing is that the school system is an insufficiently good discriminator, and you're getting people who are getting extremely good marks coming through there, but not being tested in a way that tests the kind of thinking we'd be looking for. You know, it's feeling that, that I get in speaking to long-experienced teachers, they say that now that we don't have standard and higher grade, we have a broad syllabus that's all examined at standard grade level. So there isn't that ability to discriminate against the top students. You know, you might get people with great marks, but are they necessarily the right people for our profession coming through? And work their way through the university system, but um, don't have that 
level of critical thinking that we're probably looking for in this profession might be be part of it is from, let's say, a bit of an amateur talking there. I rely more on yourselves and um, Garrett and the other academics in the room to give some guidance, but that's certainly what, what I would have seen. Andrew? The F1 and F2. Yeah, so um, Andrew's just making the point around um, the, the fellowship subjects and the um, experience in the practice area in terms of people writing the um, fellowship subjects and also about the associate level qualification, so that drop-off rate in terms of what it would mean at the associate as opposed to at the fellowship level. I think, Andrew, your first one, the associate level one, I don't have the, the numbers with me here, but there are quite a lot of students who are on the place where they've met the requirements for the associateship other than might not have yet submitted a work-based learning but the other requirements and they could well become associates and it's part of the reason that we're having a debate about whether the associateship, you know, we want to encourage the associateship and almost whether it should be almost a, a mandatory stopping point on the way through to fellowship or not which I know is in some organisations and I think even the institute and faculty are considering that as an option in their world as well. So we are looking at that. But there would be, I think, you know, it's measured, counted in the hundreds, probably the students that are, have met the requirements, but I don't have that figure with me. The years of experience in practice area, I think, for the fellowship level, I think that is a very important thing to be there. I know that the examiner's guideline is looking at around three years of experience is, is what's, what's expected when they sit in the questions, and I think you know, you're, you're always going to get your exceptional students that are going to pass, you know, 
in those situations, but I think that is a very relevant factor. But a challenge to measure that. at the moment because yes. we don't necessarily have the data in this. Yes, system. and the data we you know, some of our, our data, we probably not be able to get definitively good data on that without a lot of manual cleaning, and even then I wouldn't be that confident in to do, but it definitely is work worth looking at. And the interventions, I say, unfortunately, the numbers are still so low that we can't, we can't put a claim that this is significant. You know, if you have, you know, you have 10 people go and do a counselling in a session when you've got 100 and something in the course, it's, it's not through certainly the tests that, that I've used. I say with my 30 plus year old stats, but even the work that Dave Strugnell did with us show anything to be significant. So that's why I use the term where they are marked in consistent differences. <laughs> as opposed to significant, because that is, you know, I suppose, a more layman's perspective, but that's all we can really do on that. Question? Go ahead. Hi, I'm Manalizo Tessa. And a scenic route student, somewhat scenic route student. Just first to touch on the last point Andrew made about looking at the relevant experience practice area experience for fellowship subjects. The current F200 structure becomes difficult based on how organizations work. So before my current role, I worked in product development for retail savings products, which when you put it against the fellowship subjects falls in nowhere. Mm. It is not really life insurance, even though I work for a life insurer, and it's not investments because it's very different from that syllabus. And it's sort of, I, I believe I could do my job. I'd like to say the people I worked with would say I could do my job, but in terms of the exam structure, I am not up to par because what I do doesn't fit in cleanly. And I know it's a messy thing to think about, but we, we're getting more fields, data science mm. and machine learning and all of that is becoming a big thing. We need to start thinking about how we assess fellowship because the core subjects, the traditional subjects are wonderful, but I personally didn't come into the sectoral work world to live in the traditional space and it's now sort of a blockade. I'm not giving up yet because I told myself I'm going to finish this thing, but yeah. And then I had like sort of two other points. The first was one of the slides about employer support had time off allocation, which personally I had, I had dreams of like climbing corporate ladder. So sometimes I got too deep in my work and I'd have a beautiful time allocation, but the environment and my focus on my work meant that I didn't take the full allocation. And I know employers don't track this, but it would be mm. an interesting thing to track because it then also feeds into the culture. Mm. Because employer might say, we want you to pass, we want you to pass first time, but I don't give you the space to pass first mm. time. And that might start showing signs and why certain employers aren't doing as well as others. And the last part is about that 800, 480 drop off. I think between the 400 and the 80, when someone stops writing, like few sessions not showing up on the as a registering for exams, we need to 
start investigating because the way it looks right now, it seems like many people are dropping off. And along the way, you might make it into a role that doesn't need you to finish the mm. qualification. And as it stands, it looks like the churro world just cows off people. And you're either the strongest or you die along the way. But it might be that person could have actually passed all the exams, but they decided that this isn't the life for me. And if we can sort of filter that out, we can maybe then start addressing the real problems of why people don't make it through rather than saying lots of people don't make it through. It's a horrible mm. world. Thank you. Mike. I think, um, I think there's some very, very sound points you've made on there. I think from the start, your last one first, the 80, the 800, 400, 800, that 80, that was just to show, this is what the data shows. I agree with absolutely on your reasoning that it's not saying that, that most of those people fall away because they can't make it. I think there are quite a few, as you say, who move on to different careers and we probably need to look at that more more actively to understand why people move on sometimes. You're absolutely right. So it's not saying that 90% of the people just fall by the wayside entirely. I think your comment about the F200s, I think that is a very important question about understanding the F200 level experience, because it's one going back to, say, in the companies where we see the stronger performance there, is the ones that either through the work that they give people or the way they involve people, they get a broader access to, to the full value chain, if you can call it that. So you look yourself saying a product development role, and that I agree with you in itself is a very narrow part of the life insurance space. So you're writing the life insurance fellowship. And unless it's in a role where you get a level of exposure through that role to what's happening across the whole impact of the product through, through what's happening on the valuation side, the capital side, and everything else that might be involved through the, the process, you are at a disadvantage going through to the exams. I think there are some employer organizations that they need people to be working in product development and either through a rotation policy or through just involving more people in internal meetings that discuss the much broader space does give their students an advantage. That's, that's what I, the sort of picture I see coming through the numbers through that and your comments on the study leave and people not taking the full lot. I think there probably isn't anyone here who doesn't do agree with you on that and it does go back to that culture, the relative importance of the exams and giving the students the space space to go and that I think is an important part. Thanks Mike. Well unfortunately we're out of time now but what I'm hoping is that this um, presentation and the paper itself also has stimulated your thinking about this tricky topic in terms of how we, um, how we provide the necessary support um, to help the students through this process in a, in a constructive way as possible. So what I'd like to do is to encourage you to um, communicate with, um, with Mike or with myself in terms of your thoughts on the paper and also your, um, your views on what the most appropriate support mechanisms are in terms of where the society and the education board should be focusing their attention. But thank you so much for your interest in the session. And Mike, thank you so much for the presentation and for the work that went into putting the paper together. Thank you.